Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Up until this episode, I had never seen the Will Rogers Follies. Confession, I had never seen it. And the original Broadway production was filmed for Japan Television? I had no idea. And the entire thing's on YouTube. Of course, you've done it a lot, right, Jeff? I've conducted it. I did one production I conducted, and I played in the pit for two other productions. So, yeah, three times. Now, going into this, I honestly was thinking, like, do we really need to look at a show in which the point of view is the philosophies of a straight white male? Is that what we really need right now in 2020? And that's kind of how I felt watching maybe like the first half of the Will Rogers Follies on this filmed for television version. And then this little piece of information was spilled and I went, apparently Will Rogers is the only person, at least that I know of, the only person that was asked to speak at the Republican National Convention and the Democratic National Convention in the same year. And he even says it in the show. That's even mentioned in the show. It kind of goes by fast. Yeah, like they just kind of spit that out. And I like totally had a railroad track moment. And that really flipped my whole perspective on covering the show today. Because I was like, what does he have that is crossing this bridge between political parties that have always been so polarized? But what is he doing? What is he getting at? And that's kind of what I'm really excited to talk about today. That makes sense. Also... You know, remember, he's of he's of Native American descent. Right. And you look at the original cast and it's like Keith Carradine playing Will Rogers. So I'm like, oh, it's a it's a straight white cowboy. And then you get into the show and you realize, oh, he's part Cherokee. Well, no wonder he's able to cross bridges, which leads me to my thesis statement, which is minorities are who teach us how to build bridges and cross them. The end. Have a great day, everybody. Welcome, everybody, to a musical theater podcast where we discuss the cultural and emotional impact of some of our favorite shows, favorite musicals, rather, in theater history. My name is Jeffrey Scott Parsons. You can call me Jeff. Today, joining me on the podcast is another Jeff, Mr. Jeff Rizzo. Hi, Jeff. Hi. I'm so glad you're here. I always refer to you as Jeffrey because since you use that professionally, Jeffrey Scott it's Parsons. true. Or it's JSP. I like to call you JSP. I think I wrote you an email saying, hey, hey, JSP. Yeah, why not? Rather than write all that out. When I was starting out, I was going to use my full name with my middle initial, Jeffrey J. Rizzo. I thought, that looks good. And then after a while, I thought, you know, Jeff Rizzo, it's... No, it's great. It's a great name. It's better. It's cleaner. It's, you know, it doesn't sound so... I don't need, you know, the three names, Ricky Ian Gordon, Jason Robert Brown... (laughs) I thought I am Michael John Lacusa all the way. Yeah, I'm just in fact, we took his at and said avoid for auditions, avoid composers that have three names. (laughs) Anyway, 
Fair enough. Jason Robert Brown. Oh my gosh, you're so right. Difficult, difficult music. You don't want to do anyway. <laughs> that poor so, so I so I just use Jeff Rizzo. And it's, I'm glad I did because it's now, it's just more. No, you are Jeff Rizzo and you are yeah. a wonderful music director in the Los Angeles. Well, I guess everywhere, but you're based in Los Angeles. Based in Los Angeles. You are no stranger to spectacle, which I think makes you also a great guest for this show, uh, The Will Rogers Follies, because you spent how much of your life working on The Wizard of Oz? Well, I was thinking about that today. I think I've done 13 productions of The Wizard of Oz, three of oh, which were, well, there was Paper Mill, and then Paper Mill four, five years later became, we moved it to Madison Square Garden, and then every year we remounted it, and it wow. would tour. So if you count those as each a production, plus productions I did before, productions I did done since. So like there's 13 Wizard of Oz's, I think, in my life. Plus we actually did a, rec- a cast album recording, which got a Grammy nomination, that's amazing. Well, yeah, it was the thing. I think it was the same year as Aida. I could always pick which show would win because whatever was the most poppy show had the most poppy <laughs> score Ding. Would, would win the Grammy. So, of course. So, like the year Lion King, you know, everybody was upset because it won over Ragtime. Well, Ragtime won best book and best score, and then Lion King won best musical. And, right. I, and people said, What do you think about that? I said, I think that went the way it should go. I, I think agree. Lion, I think. Lion King changed the game. I think Ragtime did have the best book and did have the best score, but Lion King overall was this amazing, talk about spectacle, was an amazing show. It's still running, for God's sakes. What's interesting in talking about the Lion King and Ragtime and, and that year is that the Tony Awards year for the Will Rogers Follies, it won Best Musical, but it did not win Best Book. That went to The Secret Garden. Uh, it did win Best Score. It won all of the design elements, but... It was definitely not the show that got the best reviews. It got a horrible review in the New York Times. Hmm. Go figure, right? And I wonder if people complaining about The Lion King winning Best Musical and being kind of a spectacle is leftover (laughs) anger for the types of decisions like this, where the Will Rogers Follies, which was a huge, overproduced, glorious spectacle of a show gets best musical because it kind of is the biggest, most pretty show, not necessarily the best written. And that is something that like I can both look at and appreciate and tell everybody to calm down. But but it's interesting nonetheless. Uh, had you seen the show before you musically directed it? Yeah, I saw it in New York. I The shows I remember seeing, because there's like all these trips to New York and they start blending, but I always sure. seem to remember what shows I saw at the same time. And I remember seeing... Once on this island, mm-hmm. Miss Saigon, mm-hmm. and Will Rogers Follies, and I think I had already maybe I had already seen Secret Garden. I don't know. I don't remember how the the, the times exactly. Well, you were <laughs> first of all, you're like four for four on the best musical nominees for that year. It was okay. uh, Once on this Island, Secret Garden, Miss Saigon, okay. Will Rogers Follies. Will Rogers Follies wins. I don't know. So I saw I saw Will Rogers Follies on Broadway. And I had already played some auditions for it in L.A. because, to talk about what you were kind of talking about, they got a little flack because there was nobody of color in the show. Exactly. So Jeff Calhoun, who I had worked with, uh, came out to L.A. for some auditions. They were looking for some girls for the show, and they were specifically looking for people of uh, color, Latino girls or black girls. They were looking, they wanted, you know, there's just some diversity. So I remember I played a De- Debbie Reynolds. I remember playing 
diamonds for Mrs. Rogers. I remember. <laughs> and I had, the album hadn't come out yet. You know, it, wow. it, the show had just kind of opened, but the album hadn't come out yet. So that was my first experience with it. I remember thinking, oh, I want to see this. This sounds like it's really great. So mm-hmm. I did go see it. And my I loved it. Aww. I mean, I, I had seen Miss Saigon, which I liked. I remember thinking a lot of the tunes sounded like other tunes from other shows. Sure. Why God da da da? It's like there's a small hotel. I was like, <laughs> I was like, what? Or the heat is on in Saigon. That ain't the way to have fun, son. I was like, this whole score is derivative of other songs. Anyway, <laughs> but that's me, Mister Tune Detective. So Tune Detective I, over here. We got so, Shazam. Right. So I had seen. I'd seen Once on This Island, which was a, a lovely show. I remember just being knocked out by it. It was like they did it, you know, very simply. It was I forget, it was in a small Broadway house. I remember mm-hmm. thinking at the time, this probably should have been an off-Broadway musical, and it would mm-hmm. probably run for a long time. They had to get rid of all the stuff. They just painted the bricks of the theater, you know, wow. in, in that beautiful Caribbean colors. Mm-hmm. And it was a really special, lovely show. And then <laughs> And then the opposite, I think then like the next night I go see Will Rogers Follies and I was at like, the palace, no less at the palace. And it's the way it even starts out. There's that fantastic music and there's a whole rope thing around the proscenium and on Broadway, they didn't do this on tour. I don't think the whole thing lit up, but moved like an airplane, wow. you know, like you saw the lights, you know, tracing, you know, like starting and just going on. So you started out immediately. I went, Oh my God. And then, the opening number, which is like 14 minutes long or something. It's so long. <laughs> it goes on forever. It goes on forever. And it's like, I didn't know really know that much about Will Rogers. I knew, of course, who he was. There was always that thing in the movie theaters where they would raise the Will Rogers Foundation. Would, would, would yeah, you'd money. go in, kind of like Broadway Cares, Equity Fights Age right. sort of it thing. It was kind of, yeah. The bucket. Right. They had that. And so I, I was aware of Will Rogers, but I didn't really know the whole story that he you know, would take things out of the newspaper. Uh, Neither did I. I I didn't realize, A, what a sensation he was. Yeah, he was a big star. Like, what a talent to be such a huge superstar and still seem like such an ordinary person. It's a really interesting dichotomy to put his name before the Follies, the most extravagant type of entertainment we've had (laughs) in this country, uh, because he does seem so humble and underplayed and you know he's like just an your, your next door neighbor nice guy yeah he's like an everyman he's kind of like not unlike say regis philbin was oh you know, regis, yeah that's a great regis combo. would get on would do his morning show and he'd just talk about whatever he did the night before uh-huh. he just and i just saw a thing recently it was the, the women of the view talking about him and and whoopi goldberg said you know he was amazing he could talk about nothing he could really <laughs> just get on he no script and he could fill up time on the air and be interesting and i have a feeling will rogers had that same kind of down home i'm just a regular guy i can i'm just going to talk about what's in the news Mm -hmm. and so yeah also too you should know that the the show took a long time to get produced it had been written many years before it actually finally hit broadway and it was called originally florenz ziegfeld presents the will rogers follies wow the original title and somebody said we can't call it that (laughs) it's too long we don't have enough lights or maybe it was Ziegfeld presents the it was like it was this long weird title and I remember hearing about it for a long time and then nothing ever happened and you know then finally it did happen 
And of course they had, you know, the voice of Flo Ziegfeld. Right. Know, Move it along, Mr. Rogers. To give everybody the idea of what the concept is, in almost like a Forever Plaid sort of way, if you know that show, Will Rogers is coming to this theater in the time in which it's being presented, in this case, 1991, to kind of give a review of his life. So he knows he's dead. We know he's dead. But he is coming to this theater to tell this audience about his life in the form of the Ziegfeld Follies, which he at one point had been a headliner in, I guess, for like six years, like for quite a long time. So the whole structure of the show is the old school Ziegfeld Follies with little vignettes that teach us about him along the way. From what I've read, a lot of the critics felt like it was disjointed, that it was two shows. It was, there was this kind of retrospective on Will Rogers and then the Follies portion. I tend to disagree. I think that it's a really interesting contrast between someone who's an unlikely star and something that's, like I said, so extravagant and overproduced. It, there's nothing more American as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> well, yeah, I think it was a very clever way to tell his story rather than do a linear funny girl, which sure. is somebody of the same era where they right. just tell a story. It's, there's sort of a flashback in Funny Girl. Yeah. She starts. And this was, I call it an innovative way to tell the story that you could only really tell on stage you know, it was very, I thought, very theatrical. Which I think is interesting for someone like Will Rogers, who had such a relationship with his audience whenever he was on stage. Yeah, I thought it was a lovely show. And I know there's a whole big, long story. You know, they originally had cast John Denver. Yes, right? which I love me some John Denver. That's kind of our jam in the Utah. <laughs> he would have, well, he would have been a great choice. And in some ways, the perfect choice, because he would have been the right personality Mm-hmm. He kind of had the same kind of easygoing thing. There was a big something that happened. He heard one of the creative team say something. I don't know if it was actually out of his mouth or passed to him through media or through another third party. But for whatever reason, it was enough for him to step away from the project. Yeah, which is another reason I think it got it got waylaid. Oh, sure. That makes total sense. But um Keith Carradine and D. Hody were really fantastic. Really we will talk fantastic. about D. Hody in a little bit because... Yeah, she was so good. And he was fantastic. He was just really... And I saw it, I saw the show three times, two, twice on Broadway and once the national tour, plus then I've seen a couple others and then did a couple Oh my gosh, okay. <laughs> so, yeah. That is a lot. Okay, I, I was going to give a positive review to the show. I cannot imagine watching it five times. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was something about it. For me, it was uh, it was a throwback. That's what year was the show? I don't even remember. You probably remember. Uh, so it was like ninety ninety one is when it. Okay, so it's really ninety. So it's you know, so it's almost thirty years ago. Jeez, mm-hmm. gosh! At that time, there was a shift in there was the beginning of the shift in musicals for sure. And I was really on board with the Avitas and the Les Mises and this like that. I was, I was okay with all that. So I wasn't like going, what's happening? Because I had sure. older friends that were like, I don't know what's happening with musical theater. It was there like, were plenty of people. Now I've become that, that <laughs> with shows like Spring Awakening. It's like, which I like, ugh, not my thing at all. I've left, I walked out on that at, at intermission. Because to me now the shows don't have songs anymore. There's, you don't walk away going, wow, what a great score. Mm-hmm. There's shows that I see that I loved, like Come From Away, which I think is an amazing show. Do I think it's a great score? Not really. It has one or two good songs. 
But for me as a score, I don't need to listen to the album. So when I saw Will Rogers at the time, there was starting to be a shift. So when I saw Will Rogers, I said, oh my God, they're still writing. Of course, it was Cy Coleman, which is, I know it's one of the reasons you wanted to talk about it. It was a Cy Coleman show. You know, you think of Cy Coleman as a jazzy guy, but, you mm-hmm. know, he could write on the 20th century, which is like an operetta. And then he wrote Will Rogers' Follies, which is a real musical comedy, old school. And yeah. I don't think he fits into a slot necessarily. So for me, it was like, oh my gosh, it's so nice to hear hummable songs, clever songs, Compton and Green, clever lyricists. I know people call Will Rogers' Follies, they call it a tired businessman's musical, meaning... <laughs> You know, the wives take the husbands, come on, honey, we're going to go see this show. And they go, I'm not going to lie. I hate musicals. And they go see it. Of course, there's pretty girls and a lot of Mm. dancing and the guys love it. And you don't have to pay attention too much. There's not a lot of plot. And it's like, it's just a big, fun extravaganza. It got kind of labeled as one of the last of those tired businessmen shows. Yeah, that's interesting. It's also quite long. I mean... For not having much of a plot, the show runs at two and a half hours very easily. It's a yeah. There's a lot. There's a lot jammed in it, but it's one of those shows too. I when I conducted the show, which was at American Musical Theater of San Jose, we'd get to the exit music, and I'd we'd finish the exit music, and I put my baton down, and I think to myself, "Oh, it's over for the night." Aww. I, was, I loved doing it so much. The show is so filled with heart. Yeah. We've already mentioned a couple of the reasons why I'm really excited to be covering this show as well. This is the first Cy Coleman show that we're covering on the podcast. It's also the first Tommy Toon musical that we're talking about, and also the first Peter Stone show. So these are three dudes from musical theater history that we haven't talked about yet, and I'm excited to do so. Cy Coleman, number one, you've already discussed, is is a wonderful composer that in a Will Rogers type of way isn't always in the same breath as Sondheim, R&H, Julie Stein, and yet is incredibly versatile, has a slew of amazing shows and incredible scores to his name. Wildcat, which starred Lucille Ball, which is a show that never gets done. Yeah, it was like Lucille Ball's only big Broadway bow. Only Broadway show. And it's about this woman who like kidnaps an oil guy... And keeps him hostage, and then I think they fall in love, and then he like buys her property. Anyway, it's it's all about oil, and there's a kidnapping involved. I don't even know if it's based on anything. I can, of course, it has "Hey, Look Me Over." Yeah, which was a huge hit. Used to and used to be every girl dancer used to always sing that for auditions because it has like, like a five note range. So. Like if if Lucy can sing it. So fifth chorus girl from the left can definitely sing it. So that was it used to be one of those. And there's a show called Little Me, which I'm lucky enough to have seen twice. It's one of my favorites. I think it's hilarious. It's a hilarious show. It's based on a Patrick Dennis who wrote Anti-Mame. Mame. It's based on yep. a book he wrote. Great score. Carolyn Lee and Cy Coleman. And it has real life girl mm-hmm. uh, on the other side of the tracks. It has it's just loaded with. Such a great jazzy score. Right. And then I also saw the other the next revival they did with Martin Short and Faith Prince. I wish I could have seen Sid Caesar do the original because I hear he was just like it was tailored for him. Yeah. You know, and then, of course, we've got um, Sweet Charity, which I think is probably Cy Coleman's most famous. Musical. So if you know anything from Sweet Charity, Big Spender, My Friends Could See Me Now, now we're talking right. Cy Coleman, yeah. And it's a great score. And they even made, it's an odd movie, but it's a good representation of the show. Shirley MacLaine was a great choice. 
Mm-hmm. Um, what a lot of people don't know is that Gwen Verdon was there on set coaching her, teaching her the role. That's why Shirley, I think, is one of the reasons she's so good in the movie is that Gwen was giving her all the insights. Wow, and, interesting. So Sweet Charity, yes. Everybody knows Sweet Charity. Uh, then I think came Seesaw, which is another show you don't you won't see. It, you you probably won't see it, and maybe we'll do an episode about it. Maybe we won't. But one of the important links to Will Rogers' Follies is that a young dancer had a supporting role in it, right. Mr. Tommy Toon, who Tommy is Toon. this you know six foot six <laughs> dancer from Texas who was in the film version of Hello, Dolly as Ambrose Kemper with Barbara Streisand and makes it to Broadway. Uh, He's he's really, really tall, so we found it a little difficult to be cast, but he ends up getting this supporting role in Seesaw in which he's kind of one of the first out gay characters in musical theater history. And he wins a Tony for it. So he wins this first of very many Tony Awards as an actor in a musical. That takes his career to new places. And he, in the 70s, starts choreographing. And then in the 80s, starts directing and choreographing. And really, once Michael Bennett, once Jerome Robbins, once Bob Fosse all kind of go away, Tommy Toon reigns on Broadway with an iron fist for about a decade. Anyway, but he he unlocks that special formula of giving audiences exactly what they want while doing something really interesting and creative. He also has Native American heritage in himself. I wonder, I honestly wonder if that's the reason why he picked Will Rogers Follies. I, I mean, who knows? Who knows, right? Yeah. But it seems to be the one show from his canon of musicals that is tied most intrinsically to his roots. Yeah, as like this young Texas kid learning about show business and dealing with all of that. I think that there's a lot of Tommy Toon in this musical. Yeah, definitely. Jeff Calhoun had a lot to do with the choreography. I think they were unsure. Jeff told me, he said, we didn't know if it was going to be a hit. Interesting. And what you're telling me about the New York Times review, it obviously wasn't a shoe-in necessarily. Yeah. Because usually a bad Times review used to mean the show would close, but the show didn't close. The show was not with this one. Hit. It ran for years. The show was a big hit and had a tour and it got done a lot regionally at first. It's one of those now that you don't really see much anymore. When you were talking about this time period being a transition for musical theater, specifically in New York, I think you are 100%, maybe even 150% correct on that because it feels like this type of show that is going to get my grandparents into the seats. And both of my grandparents are now deceased. So I can't imagine why a regional theater would do it when the crowd that they were hoping to lure to the theater in 1991 is no longer here. That's probably true. And yet what's interesting is one of the Cy Coleman shows we haven't talked about yet is Barnum. Barnum. And there are a lot of similarities between Barnum and Will Rogers right. Follies. One of our listeners, Colden, shout out to Colden, sent me this thing that he, like a little blog post that he wrote all about Cy Coleman. And I hadn't really thought of that until I, I saw that he had written it down, that these are two spectacle shows in which a retrospective of a really interesting character is thread throughout all of these different acts. In Barnum, it was P.T. Barnum and had circus acts all throughout it. In Will Rogers' Follies, you know, we got Will Rogers with the Follies going on. 
it's interesting and yet also couldn't be more different from a tone place. Also in terms of music in Will Rogers Flies, there's a lot of old school country, not country like we know it now. No. But um which may have stemmed from the idea of John Denver, maybe they yeah, were. Yeah, there's like a lot of Hank Williams type sounding stuff. It's like I'm sure there's things about Sweeney Todd that were written with Angela Lansbury's comedy in mind. There's probably things in Fiddler because they had Jerome Mostel. I'm sure there's things, there's things that just start getting tailored to those people. It makes sense that Will Rogers might have more of a country feel. Barnum, a friend of mine wrote the book, Mark Bramble, who also co-wrote 40 Seconds. Mark passed away last year. We, we were a, just talking about Mark Bramble with Jason Graw on our Grand Tour episode. Right. Of course, because Mark came. Mark was around for that. Exactly. And Mark, Mark was a, a good friend of mine because I had done the 42nd Street national tour of the revival. And then I also took it to China. Another you know, Mark, spectacle show, man. Look at you. Mark directed both of those. And Mark was a character. How fun. <laughs> Mr. Rizzo, <laughs> you would be Mr. Parsons. When you're playing Billy Waller, you have to do... Anyway, so yeah, I've forgotten about Barnum. And then, of course, there's City of Angels. Oh. Uh, the Life, which I which I also I saw, which is a very different show for Cy Coleman because it was more pop-oriented, R&B mm-hmm. a little bit. But yeah, Will Rogers was like, you know, the Times Review comes out and they were probably going, uh-oh. And then mm-hmm. it was it was such a hit. Yeah, so. no, it it definitely brought the right people to the theater. For someone like me in 2020, I really struggled with the first act. But by the end of the show, I was totally hooked in and, and had a great time watching it. Right. It, it. It's an investment show, but I think that you get your return. Unfortunately, the producers did not because the Will Rogers Follies was so expensive that even though it ran for, what, over three years, I believe, it wasn't able to recoup its initial investment. Oh, Ben Brantley, who was the reviewer in the Times at that point and was not always a nice man, but he really took the show to task because of its lack of diversity in the cast, which more power to him, especially in a season where there had also been talks of diversity on stage in Miss Saigon. Yeah, there was a big thing there. He also took them to task a little bit in talking about how expensive these shows were. His theory was these really expensive shows had producers in them that were tied to the theaters themselves. So the theaters could make money even if the show didn't recoup its investments. So they wouldn't get paid as producers, but they would get paid as the theater because they would be able to sell out the show. So it didn't matter if it was technically a flop. So was the Palace of Nederlander Theater? I think so. Yeah, because it played the Pantages, so that makes sense. So like that whole kind of schemey thing was something interesting that I hadn't thought of. We talked about what hit flops are, (laughs) shows that are so expensive that it doesn't matter how long they run, they can't make their money back when we talked about Sunset Boulevard. But Will Rogers Follies would have been another one that was like that. Kind of around the same time, early 90s. Yeah, that's kind of too bad because I think of it as a hit. You think of it as Yeah. Oh, no, absolutely big hit. Something that runs over a year. I mean, it used to be in the old days, if a show ran a year, it was a hit. If it ran two years, it was a smash hit. But sure, Will Rogers' shirt, every cent was up there, though, on that stage. Yeah. <laughs> you saw there were costumes and there were, ce- there were scenery and there was a big orchestra. Every time oh, someone gosh. comes out on stage, it's in another, it's in a different costume. Yeah. The yeah. show starts with this, like we said, this really big first number called Willamania which I think will absolutely get stuck in your head. 
by the end of the 14 minutes. And, <laughs> and had nudity in it too. You know? uh, that's know. well, that's what I was going to say is that like halfway through that number, I went, huh, more nudity in this show than I would have expected. Well, back in the day, those, those big folly shows had nudity or these topless girls. Yeah. You have some girls with their tatas out. Uh, you also had a guy with his booty out who was, okay. So in, you see this scrim, there is a native American dance happening on this huge drum right. uh, upstage. And he's only in like this very, very small loincloth and you see his booty and he's doing this great dance. That was originally Jerry Mitchell. Mitchell, right. And because he did that, he got the idea to start Broadway Bears, Broadway which Bears. is like the strip show that they do for charity every year on Broadway because he's like, oh my gosh, I'm surrounded by dancers with amazing bodies. We should do a strip show <laughs> and raise money. And well, I- so that like became... Uh, that became a tradition all because he danced naked on a drum. The- when I saw the show, well, I think the second time I saw the show, they were doing Broadway care, Broadway cares. And yeah, so yeah, yeah. people were, and I remember he was, he was out there with the little bucket and I went to his bucket. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, like, Hey, like, hey, Mr. I, Mitchell. you know, I had my $5 bill and I like, I put it in and I said, I loved your dance. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he was, you know, it was, and the girl, I can't remember her name, but I worked with her when we did it at, I played in the pit at South Bay, when South Bay did a production with Johnny Bison played. Oh, R.I.P. Johnny Bison. What a perfect Will Rogers. Yeah, he was terrific. Um, and the girl who did the topless thing was in that production, but they didn't let her do the topless. Not in South Bay. Not at South Bay. Not in Redondo Beach, California, folks. This number does make me a little uncomfortable, to be honest, because there are no Native Americans on stage, you know, and there's like, you're like paying an homage, but it's all through this filter of the Ziegfeld Follies. So it doesn't feel like it's real. It's just like pretends. I mean, it does make me very uncomfortable nowadays. Today, I think you're right. Today, we couldn't. Well, what about those costumes where the girls are dressed like cows? Oh, you know, I and they have even... those those remember the tails, and then yes. they do that thing, and they and they're they're sort of on their knees, and they go, ah. like our it's little like, line of heifers. Yeah, that's wait, not great. You that's just not go, great. Guys. Even at the time, I remember thinking, hmm. And then <laughs> now you would definitely go, well, we can't, we're not doing that. This whole Willamania number, which is led by Ziegfeld's favorite, who is Katie Huffman, who's also probably better known to you as Ula from The Producers. Uh, she's this like featured Ziegfeld girl who leads everyone in this number. And then Will descends on this rope, right? Because Will Rogers, on top of being this humorist and all around nice guy, in many ways an activist, but he was also amazing at rope tricks. Rope, heavily featured in Will Rogers' Follies. We meet him. There are several really long monologues in which he introduces uh, who he is and his perspective on things. His most famous quote is, I never met a man I didn't like, right? Right. Which ultimately becomes the name of one of the numbers. And he just has this really lighthearted way of telling the truth to people that makes them laugh. In many ways, he's an equal opportunity offender, but there's no malice behind it. I think that sometimes like the South Park people within the Book of Mormon world, like they like to think of themselves as an equal opportunity offender. 
And yet, I don't believe that there's no malice behind it. I just think that <laughs> there's a little bit of giddy enjoyment that you get out of being that critical of people. With Will Rogers, it feels different. He's simultaneously criticizing everyone and offending no one. And I don't know how he does that. That's true. Because he's, well, because he's sort of like an everyman. Yeah. I guess. But like, in, he's not being politically correct no. in most of his humor. And yet... He's not offending anyone. I don't know if you have to offend someone in order to shock them into change. Like maybe that's kind of the route that we're taking nowadays. But to be reminded of this approach to telling the truth and having integrity and and being authentic was very refreshing. Well, there was a thing where comedians becoming politically incorrect is how is kind of their charm. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Look, I love me some Sarah Silverman. I love all of... They're great. Truly, truly, truly. And yet, I do also believe that these types of figures who are able to do so without the audience questioning whether or not their heart is in the right place is a great example for us to also have in our lives. Will Rogers is kind of like the antithesis of Don Rickles. (laughs) (laughs) Because Don Rickles would... Mr. Nice Guy. I saw him a couple times live. And it's interesting... When you see him live and he does a whole thing, you realize at the end, it all comes from this lovely, wonderful, loving place. He's, yeah. Because he, he makes fun of everybody's, you know, you know, he makes fun of you if you're gay, black, Asian, whatever. Sure. He will make fun of you, Jewish. And then at the end, he turns it all around. He goes, we're all, we're all the same because we're all different. And that's mm. the joy of what makes human beings. And he does a little song thing and you kind of go, wow, I always thought of him as just being kind of just sort of snarky, but it isn't just snarky. Well, Rogers makes his points without ever kind of doing that jabbing finger at you, like, mm-hmm. you know, he or, or saying anything. He just he's just kind of like sweet about yeah. the whole thing. For being so kind of aw shucks and scratch his head and, you know, chew gum <laughs> while he's talking, he's also a workaholic because on top of doing the follies, he writes a column in the newspaper every single day. He uh, is doing radio shows. He ultimately moves to California where he stars in films. This guy goes nonstop. And I guess if there is any contrast in terms of the plot, it's that he's spending too much time away from his family and that he's going to die one day. Like that's that's really the only pushback that we have against this character is that he's he's not spending enough time at home. Right. Which then gives birth to this other character who is his wife, Betty Rogers, Betty Blake. He always called her Blake, Blake. by her maiden name. Yeah. And very easily could have been a nagging wife saying, why are you away so long? But then you get somebody like Dee Hody in the role who is so intelligent, such a fantastic actress, never looks like she's pushed vocally a day in her life. She She was able to make make it interesting yeah exactly and they also they wrote her some a couple great songs i mean there are some great tunes in this show she she got to sing a couple really really good songs let's talk about him now what's the torch one what's that one called Uh, no man left for me yes that's a great song yeah that the one she does on top of a piano yes also her entrance which is (laughs) on the moon well it's it so as the show is continuing and, you know, once again, Will Rogers has all of these monologues. Then we hear the voice of Ziegfeld, who's kind of like God above the theater, telling Will to get the show along, along, right? 
Move it along, Mr. Rogers. You may think it's your show, but it's my show. And so there are several times throughout the show where he's trying to tell his story, but his story isn't exciting enough for a Ziegfeld show. And once again, this is where I think the interesting uh, dichotomy of these two things comes into play and maybe could have gone even further. So Ziegfeld makes them live their life a little bit more over the top. They don't meet in a train station. They instead have to meet on the moon. So Betty Blake's entrance is on this moon and, and she is both an actress and as the woman she's playing is beside herself. <laughs> this is the moment that I fell in love with Dee Hody. She's on the moon. He goes, but I'm on the moon. And just saying Miss Blake. And she sings this song, you know, and she has this line. And Dee Hody did it. I, I wish I could do it. And I, when I've done the show, I've tried to tell the girls. Well, all I tell them is you have to pause before you say mooning. So the line is, here I sit mooning on the moon mooning. So what Dee did when I, the first time I saw it, especially, she said, here I am mooning on the moon mooning. Just the way she did it, like, I can't, the whole subtext just came like roaring. I'm really singing this on the moon. Yeah. You got, you got everything you needed to know just by her doing that. And it, and it was a huge laugh. It made me just adore her. I was like, I love you. How can, you know, how can I not love you? It's like, it was just so stupid. It's like, why is she on the moon? Yeah. Clever. Will Rogers apparently had six sisters. All yes. of whom were single, the six single sisters. Single sisters. And that three times fast. <laughs> we also meet his father, who, as the father of six single sisters, uh, chooses instead to pick on his son. You know, Will can't ever live up to his high expectations. What his dad does pass along to him is a pride in their Cherokee ancestry. He was one-fourth Cherokee and was born in the Cherokee Nation, like specifically among the tribe. And I would have loved to have seen more of that in the show. Yeah, I think if they were doing the show today, they probably would play that up more. Because how many musicals do we have that have Native Americans in them? Well, Peter Pan, but they're not really Native Americans. No, they're from Neverland. Yeah, so, yeah. Okay, so let's talk about the dog acts, because all of a sudden... Because it's, you know, the the follies. There's this dog act. And it's incredible. These little puppers are, you know, they're tiny. They're like little runts. And they are doing amazing things like jumping off of platforms and hiding. And and everybody's kind of doing it at the same time. It's really incredible. At one point, they have a dog walking like the tightrope. I can't even believe it. It's It's like an America's Got Talent moment. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Now, while I had never seen the Will Rogers Follies, my grandparents had, and I did say that they were kind of the target audience. When the national tour came through Salt Lake City, my grandparents went down and saw it. And the only thing I remember them saying is the dog act. That's the only thing I remember them talking about. These are like salt of the earth farm people who also loved going to the theater. So it makes sense that they would be talking about the live animals. But my grandma would talk about how in the scene after... Will Rogers' wife was like talking and and then right in the middle of the scene, one of the dogs escaped and came on stage and everybody lost it because this dog had accidentally come on stage. Now, I remembered that. And then when I'm watching it on the video, surprise, surprise, the same thing happened at the exact same moment. Those are like 
like the planned breakup. I love that. They were totally fooled. Debbie Reynolds was a big believer in that sort of thing. When she did Molly Brown, there was a scene that would happen and they would like crack up like on the Carol Burnett show. Sure. Which I don't think those were planned. Those would just happen because yeah, 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 yeah. either Tim Conway or Harvey Corman cracked up. <laughs> <laughs> and those really happen. Of course, the audience loves that because you think oh, I'm the only person seeing that. What I have a feeling, those are, to me, those kind of moments that may, that may have happened in a rehearsal. And Tommy Toon said, I just love that. I think you've got to, you've got to do that every night. You know, have that happen. And freaking D. Hody, she's able to convince everybody that that just happened. And she, as the actor, is having a hard time keeping it together. Right. It's pretty amazing. It's a wonderful thing when, when somebody can pull that off. You think it's only happening once. And people love that. I was there the night this happened. That mm -hmm. happens every night. It happens every night, people. I love that. And as artists, I want to give it to them. I want them to believe in magic for just a little bit. You, yeah. you know, if I if we can give that to people for 15 seconds, oh my gosh, let's do it. It, it feels well, there's worth nothing it like me. There's nothing like live theater. And it's like, that's why I would be surprised if anybody ever announced they're going to make Will Rogers Follies a film because there's no way why? you could capture, there's no way you could capture what the show it's made for the stage. Yeah. It's just, it's the stage. Absolutely. And so, so after the, the dog act, then <laughs> so your grandparents love the dog act, of so course. So my grandparents love the dog act. I love the dog act. Uh, if you want to see it, it's on YouTube. Um, the end of the first act is them getting married, which is a, kind of another one of those Ziegfeld requests that like the end of the first act has to have a big number. Right, so they, they have got to postpone earlier. their wedding. Right. They got married earlier, but they, he said... No, we save that for the act one finale, Mr. Exactly. Rogers. And Betty Blake is, or Betty Rogers, is wearing the longest veil you've ever seen. Ever seen. You're right. Because it's covering, I counted, because I had time to count with all of those really long monologues. The, ori <laughs> the original staircase, which fills the entire stage, is, I believe, 14 stairs. Thankfully, those stairs stay there the whole show. The show has a book written by Peter Stone. Right. And in a very conscious way, his characters give us exposition. And so sometimes they're telling each other exposition in a really lazy writing way. And one of the characters will say, I already know that. And then they'll say, yeah, but they don't and point to the audience. Right. Those are the kinds of sneaky tricks that he put in there to try and make this thing feel cohesive. He has a very diverse career as well as a writer he wrote the book for 1776, which I believe has the longest scene without any music in musical right. theater history. He wrote the film Charade, which is a great screenplay with Cary Grant and, and Audrey Hepburn. He also wrote the books to Titanic, but then also something super presentational like Will Rogers Follies. Anyway, interesting writer. I met Peter Stone. Interesting guy. Very interesting guy. Very smart. And also, when you think about 1776... You know, we all know when you go into the theater, you know how it's going to end. You know, they're going to all going to sign that damn thing. Mm -hmm. Same <laughs> but, with Titanic. We know the ship's going to sink. But he he's a good enough writer that as you're watching, you go, will they ever sign the Declaration of Independence? <laughs> Is, it gonna Is the Titanic really going to sink? Yeah. That, there's a gift that that takes. For sure. You know? He also is able to for better or worse, put a lot of quips that Will Rogers was known for into the script. Some are funnier than others, but this is one I, that I wrote down word for word because I really loved it. This comes right after intermission, and he you know, kind of apologizes that the ladies had to stand in line 
for the bathroom by saying a lot's happened since you were standing in line out there. And he talks about evolution. What is that? The monkey scopes oh, trial? Oh, uh, he's talking about the Darwin, tr- the, yeah, the Darwin yeah. trial. Right. And so he says, there was that monkey trial to prove that we descended from the apes. I've never believed that because I never met an ape that was devious, heartless, or greedy. That's why I always figured man was descended from lawyers. Bum That's funny. That's funny. And why that's funny to me, and I think it speaks to Will Rogers' gift, is that he's kind of revealing maybe his, uh, I don't know, conservative views on evolution. But at the same time, it's not because he believes that men are so perfect that there's no way they could come from apes. He's turning it on its head and saying, there's no way we can come from apes that are better than us. So there's still this sense of humility that then I think is attractive to no matter what your outlook might be. Right. I think he would definitely give an animal the credit for not being devious. Yeah. Even though, you know, ultimately he says he didn't meet anybody he didn't like. And he truly believed it. For everyone that he criticized and for all the truth-telling that he told about human nature and how awful we can be, at the end of the day, he still said that he never met a man he didn't like. It's actually what's written on his gravestone. Okay, so uh, I guess we can skip now to what ends up becoming a presidential campaign for Will Rogers. Like I said, he's asked by both Republicans and Democrats to speak on behalf of their party. He says uh, he doesn't believe in an organized political party. That's why he's a Democrat. <laughs> yeah. Which is a funny, it's a funny line. He also says something too, where he says he's asked to speak of both conventions and he goes, Ooh, the Democrats, they're more fun because they know they're not going anywhere. Because <laughs> in those days, you know, back in those days, it was always Republicans that won, I think up until FDR. So then on top of everything else he's doing, he decides to run for president. And I believe he wins the District of Columbia. <laughs> Funny. Uh, that's that's all he gets, which technically doesn't even have any delegates. So right. there you go. But in the show, they do this big number called Favorite Son. Now, this was the number that I knew best from the show. I learned the handography from somebody who probably stole it from the original production years ago, where, it, I mean, it's all of this, like, and cross and up, and cross and up, and cross and up, and Pat the up, shoulder, and pat up, the and... other shoulder, pat it mm-hmm. twice. There's a whole thing, yeah. It's still totally effective. It's everybody sitting, you know, on one of these steps and doing uh, and doing all of this handography in unison. What I didn't realize until watching it was that in their hats are tambourines so that they could tap their neighbor's hat and then it would make a little a little sting. It's really, really inventive. And I think it's probably the biggest showstopper in the whole thing. Yeah. I I would imagine it's a big thing. Also, everybody's in red, white and blue. Yeah. I mean, it's great. It's like it's a George M. Cohen thing. We're red, white and blue American patriotism, even though it's about um, Democrats and Republicans. I don't think you really hear the lyric. The lyric is really smart. The elephant's trunk and Democrats donkey will be down the drain and sunk sunk. the day the people's victory is won. So they're 100 percent criticizing the way we do things and but like the audience is going crazy it's like yeah he's the third party candidate he's like a third party candidate that you're getting an entire theater to like get behind it's what i was talking about where you're giving the audience what they want and then maybe also something they didn't know (laughs) was there now because will rogers has run for president once again he's out of the house all the time betty his wife is is upset about it he makes it up to her 
by giving gifts, right? And there's this right. song called Presents for Mrs. Mrs. Rogers. Uh, Mrs. Rogers. Yeah. It's probably my favorite of these beautiful girls types right. numbers because each each woman that appears is in a costume that is a symbol for the jewel that he's buying for his wife, like th- this piece of jewelry. There's the sapphire, there's diamond, there's ruby, there's emerald. And we get all the colors. It's like, And you get all of the colors. It's, exactly. it's, very, for, it's very dames in 42nd Street. Exactly. When I, when I saw it, I thought, Tommy Toon, you're no fool. Because, <laughs> I mean, I don't know who conceived. That seems like a Tommy Toon conception to me. Yes, but yeah, that he then asked knows? them to write. Very clever and beautiful to look at. And, and and gorgeous, but then what makes it my favorite is then that number doesn't even have a button. It gets shut down by the Great Depression. So you right. go from the extravagance of these costumes and jewels and da-da-da-da-da, and then you have people coming on stage and literally taking off the headpieces from these girls. And, and taking the jewels from them. And taking the jewels off, and then they have to put on these, like, rags as the stage manager comes out and explains to Ziegfeld up in in the rafters that the Great Depression has caused all of his, you know, extravagance to be shut down. And then the show really turns a different corner because once you take away all of that, what's left? And what we have left is this kind of belief system that Will Rogers has been spouting the entire show. So much to the point that President Hoover, after he had addressed the nation, invited Will Rogers to talk to the American public. And I don't know if it's word for word, but he gives this great speech about income inequality, about how the working class certainly isn't responsible for the Great Depression, how every dollar that a millionaire has has come from the people who don't have (laughs) that kind of money. It's actually impressive and translates really well to today. Yeah, I think that would that would be a part of the show would play easily. For sure. The last 15 minutes of the show would, like I said, were enough to pull me back in. And then after we've seen showbiz number after showbiz number after showbiz number, the big finale of this entire musical is a very easy, beautiful country ballad which is called Never Met a Man I Didn't Like. Didn't like, yeah. And that's how the show ends, is with this very simple song and with, like, pictures, projections and that of, beautiful, they do of the, people the, from all over all over the world. And that there's a wonderful effect with, it looks like smoke, it looks like a tunnel. where As he, though he's, he's ascending. Dying, and then you see, you see the last post. When I did the show, when I played the show for Theater League, John Davidson played Will Rogers. Terrific. And I remember in rehearsal when we got to that part of the show and he's talking about, it makes me choked up too, uh, when he talks about Betty Rogers, he starts to cry in real life and he just kind of loses it. He said, I just realized how much I love my wife. And it was a real moment. It was just, it was really real. And I thought, oh my God, dude, if you can bring that every night, if you can make us feel what you're feeling, I had a whole new respect for John Davidson because he's kind of thought of as slick, you yeah. know, but, but he, he's, was a very talented, very humble, actually very Will Rogers, like kind of guy prettier than Will Rogers. <laughs> <laughs> great hair though. He had the great hair. That hair, that John Davidson hair, man. I thought he was terrific in the part and really sweet. He had a genuine, um, genuineness that was really great. Um, to wrap all of this up, one of the, the great quotes that is brought up in the show is actually 
said by his wife, uh, by Betty. She says, a living is made by what you get. A life is made by what you give. Hallmark card, perhaps. Doesn't make it any less true. That's true. And so I, I do think that this show has its heart in the right place, which is really interesting considering all the money and facade that it's filled with as well. It's an interesting show that I don't think will ever receive a revival and and certainly would never be produced in the same way it was. Right. There'd have to be the right person who came along. I almost wonder if a way to do it would be to split the role up among various like ethnicities and races to make Will Rogers almost not just an everyman, but a representation of, of the American quilt. I, you know, there was a, you may have seen this. There was a, I think it's on YouTube. There was a, I think it was an actor's fund thing of funny girl. And mm-hmm. every scene, Fanny's a different person. Yeah. And they had all kinds of people. Lily's white is one of them. Right. And I saw some of it. I didn't watch the whole thing, but it was fascinating. It was a yeah. great way to do it for a concert as a concert. Sure. It was fantastic. It was a great way to go. I have a feeling Will Rogers Follies is probably not the kind of, you're right, it's probably not the show that's going to get revived. I mean, the other thing we didn't say was the orchestrations on the Cy Coleman shows are so good. Billy Byers, who did Will Rogers, he did City of Angels. Oh my God, those charts. I remember that's so one, of right. the, one of the things about conducting it or even playing in the band too. But conducting is so exciting because the charts are so good. And, and why uh, do you think that is? Speaking from like your knowledge and stuff, is it, well, is it a relationship between a composer and orchestrator? Or? I think it's just a, a good orchestrator who really, you know, who brings something to the table. I think Cy did his own vocal arrangements, which, oh. isn't, which isn't normal, but I think he did like all the four-part harmony that the four guys sing. I think he did all those things. Gorgeous. I think he was pretty hands-on and may have had a lot of input there, or he just trusted Billy Byers, who was a really excellent orchestrator who didn't do that many shows as much as he did other things. But mm-hmm. I think in this case, they, they are good tunes, well-orchestrated, well-arranged. I, I, I love that. I love that you brought that up. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for doing this. I've had oh, such a great time talking to you. You're Well, you're so much fun because you're so into it. And <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know that many people that like get so excited about this. And also nowadays, it seems so trivial. But, you know, that's what makes life fun is, you know. But also... As trivial as it may be, we're talking about a musical. We've also, in the meantime, talked about history. We've yeah, talked yeah. about figures who've come before us. We've talked about diversity and what matters as humans and what brings us together, what pushes us apart. I like, think you've said it before. I think in many of your other podcasts, you've said you learned a lot about history from musicals. I know I did. 100%. I mean, even a show like, even a show like Annie, <laughs> yeah. there's things you learn about history in that show and so there's a lot in in when a musical is well written and has information in it there's a lot to learn you know even will even a, even a fluffy show like because it's a fluffy show like will rogers it does have as you say reality and you know it deals with some real things that aren't just fluff yeah and i think that's the maybe that's kind of the the joy of the show is that you're see you're entertained and that you do walk away with something well, that's why I feel like these conversations are so important because we're actively making time to talk about these things that maybe maybe wouldn't be expressed right. otherwise. So thank you for, for making time yeah, for no, us today. Yeah, this was so much fun. It's so <laughs> much fun. I love that you do this. Thank you.
As always, if you have recommendations for shows you'd like us to cover on a musical theater podcast, you can always email me at a musicalpodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at a musicalpodcast. And while you're at it, check out our T Public store for a musical theater podcast where we have designs that you can put on anything from shirts to face masks that pay homage to some of our favorite episodes, past and present. Jeff Rizzo, how do we follow you and everything you're up to? Do you have anything you want to plug? Um, just some virtual videos that my partner and I are doing. We did we took one we did one of All by Myself. Came out June 16th. I think we're almost up to 4,000 views on YouTube. So That's just awesome. These are your virtual choirs, virtual right? Choirs, virtual choirs, which take a long time to edit. We're in the Oof. process of editing Into the Fire from Scarlett Pimpernel and Doug Sills is singing on it, which is awesome. Cool. And then we're doing um, the story goes on from baby. Yes. So yeah. So look for those on Facebook. But if for now you look for all by myself, put in virtual and it should come up. There's a few well-known people. So anyway, so that's all I can really plug because otherwise. <laughs> Who knows? Doing this. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much again for thank doing you, this. Jeff. We will check out those videos and to all the listeners, we love you and make a living, but more importantly, make a life. Bye. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.